0: Welcome back to Humans of Purpose. I'm your host, Mike Davis, and each week I bring you conversations with local purpose-driven leaders. Leaders creating social impact through their work and inspiring positive social change across a wide variety of sectors. Sit back, tune in, and enjoy the next 40 minutes guaranteed to inspire you with our signature blend of wisdom, experience, and banter. Learn more at humansofpurpose.com.
1: And so what I realized was here in Australia, we had all of these founders saying, we don't have enough early stage capital. And we had all of these people who said, we have money and we don't know how to deploy it. And that's just a market failure. And so I was thinking, how do I solve this market failure? Because I cared a lot about our ecosystem and ecosystem development. I met Kylie, who had the syndicate. And there are lots of advantages of a syndicate and lots of disadvantages. And I said, what would it look like if we joined forces, create a model that is as lightweight as a syndicate, but has more predictability um, and kind of firepower of a fund.
0: Welcome back to another action-packed episode of Humans of Purpose. First off, a big thanks to our major sponsor, Neon Treehouse, for all their wonderful social media support to date. This week on the podcast, I'm thrilled to bring you my conversation with Rachel Newman. Rachel is co-founding partner at Flying Fox Ventures. Flying Fox is one of Australia's leading VC firms providing capital and support to early stage startups, enabling them to propel forward and soar, just like a flying fox. I was lucky to have Rachel as my course leader as part of the Wade Institute VC Catalyst Program, where I met her, where she taught me much of what I now know about how venture capital works in theory and in practice. Rachel and her team are terrific investors and thought leaders who often get access to amazing deals and are passionate about also introducing and welcoming others into venture investing. We share many passions, including gut health, well-being, soccer, and more, which you'll hear about throughout our conversation. Rachel has a wealth of knowledge about VCs, effective founders, characteristics of good deals, and the state of venture investing here and abroad, and she readily shares all of that and more in this episode. If you're interested in showcasing your brand, organization, or goods and services, we have a range of promotional and sponsorship packages available and are now taking inquiries for 2024. You can check these out in our show notes, and all you need to do is fill out a short EOI form once you've had a look at the linked promo packages PDF, and we'll get back to you within a week. Also, a reminder that you can skip all the ads, get this episode and all others a few days early on your own premium dedicated podcast feed with access to full episode transcripts, my behind-the-scenes audio note, and a bunch of other perks for the price of a cup of coffee per month. Just become a gold member by hitting the link in our show notes or heading to humansofpurpose.supercast.com. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Rachel as much as I did. Rach, I'm so happy we could make this happen. It's been a little while. You've been uh, back and forth from the States and whatnot. How are you today?
1: Yeah, I'm great, Mike. Thanks so much for chatting.
0: Yeah, you're doing okay despite the uh, ridiculous weather situation that we face here in our fine uh, state and nation.
1: You know what? Given the state of the world right now, if weather is the thing that we're complaining about, we're doing all right. (laughs)
0: <laughs> Very well said. So, um, look, I've had a fantastic experience uh, meeting you through the WADE uh, um, VCC program. Um, was Sorry, I, I'm getting completely muddled. The VC Catalyst program, which is just terrific, which you led. Um, I would love to start by hearing a little bit about your journey into VC. Uh, We'll get to Flying Fox. There are so many things to mention because I started to look at your LinkedIn and to be honest, I just got lost inside myself, overwhelmed uh, and a little bit blown away. So I saw in there Leapfrog, Bain, Eventbrite, Amazon AWS, Startmate, and innumerable other high-profile appointments. But perhaps if you can take us on a bit of a journey for yourself as to what landed you in a space to where you were interested in VC um, and and starting uh, Flying Fox.
1: Yeah, th- thanks, Mike. And, um, you know, it's funny when you list all of those things, I don't necessarily think that it's special. I just think that I'm old. So thank you for <laughs> revealing. Um, sorry, seasoned. I'm seasoned. in my <laughs>
0: seasoned. You're a veteran. Uh,
1: <laughs> that's right. And I was just in the States last week and I was attending my 20th Uh, reunion from Stanford, um, which one, it was very cool to go back to campus, but also made me feel very old because I still think that I'm a student. Um, But actually, that's a good segue to answer your question. Um, And that is, I, you know, growing up, I've always been interested in a lot of things. Um, I was never someone who's kind of like obsessed with one thing is like, I am going to be a doctor and wanted to do that my whole life. I was interested in lots of things. I was very curious. Um, and I remember when people used to ask me what I wanted to be when I grew up, I would say, you know, like all the things all the time. And so, um, that is actually playing out in my career. And so if we go back to Stanford, which we now know was 24 years ago is when I started school there. Um, I had the opportunity to do a major that looked at um, technology and the impact that it has on society and people. And so it wasn't technology and a bunch of ones and zeros, although I did take computer science class as well as there. um, And it wasn't just sociology. It was actually looking at what that intersection is between um, technology and people and how that impacts society, built environment. Um, And at that time, the digital divide was a really big issue, and that's who has access to technology and who doesn't, and how does that change how individuals, communities, and society can progress or get left behind. So that was a passion from a very early age. And my um, my first job out of Stanford was with a venture fund called New Schools Venture Fund. It was started by John Doerr, who's one of the kind of famous partners from Kleiner Perkins on Sand Hill Road. And that was actually a very cool fund. It was about 250 million dollars at the time, and it was looking at using the VC model to solve one of the most critical issues in society in America, which was uh, public education or the lack thereof, and uh, inner cities, um, not, you know, having terrible education results and therefore having, you know, the highest rate of um, prison population, uh, crime, drug use, et cetera. So I thought that was a really cool way for me to actually take my degree um, and apply it. And what it lit up for me was using traditional business models or um, financial vehicles to bring about change. And in that instance, it was social change, but um, there are so many ways in which traditional finance can be used a little bit more creatively. Um, my career took a bunch of twists and turns, and that's what happens when you're both a lifelong learner, short attention span, and just have a propensity to say yes to a lot of things. So I dabbled in public health, worked in refugee camps, went to business school, was a management consultant, um, and then circled back to um, to startups because when I was at Bain, I became um An expert in customer experience. I met the founders of Eventbrite at a party, told them kind of what I did for big companies. And they said, Do you think you can do that for startups? And it was in this moment where I was working for a very large global tech company as a client. Eventbrite had, you know, ping pong tables and kombucha on tap. And I was like, "Uh, (laughs) It's probably worth a crack to see if I can do this for a
0: startup. Just for the kombucha alone, it would be worth a crack, you know?
1: Exactly. I ditched the suit, got a hoodie on. Um, And that was my first foray into actually working with a startup, even though I had been supporting startups in venture so early in my career. Um, And that was one of those um, kind of critical career moments where I was part of that early team at Eventbrite at a time when it was really scaling globally. I had an opportunity then to move to Australia with them and was managing director and uh, launched that business here, and then went back to the States with a, go- a global strategic and growth lens. Um, and that's one of those things where when you work in a startup at that scale phase, your education is in dog years. Every day, you get a year's worth of education. Um, and so you know, it's been really cool to then take those lessons I learned at Eventbrite, help other startups grow. I always joke, I don't know how to do a lot of things, but there are one or two things I know how to do well And I've been applying those lessons with startups that I work with, first as an advisor and now as an investor. So that's kind of a long-winded way of how I got there. But it's been kind of a full circle moment for me, Mike.
0: No, that's awesome, Matt. And if I can just ask you some questions about your trajectory, because I think you're you're making me think a little bit about something I've been reflecting on a lot, um, and that's the sort of the value of generalism. Um, mm-hmm. do, do you consider yourself to be a, a generalist? You said lifelong learner. Do you consider yourself to be, you said you're good at a couple of things. Are you a generalist with deep specialty expertise in a few things? Is it is it necessary to even have a descriptor or a broad term? Or I'm just interested to hear how your perception of yourself and how you'd sort of explain yourself to others,
1: yeah, that's a great question. And I actually recently had a bit of an aha moment um because I was talking to a friend who is a GP. And if you ever want to make a GP's blood boil, Really fast, you ask them what their specialty is, and they're like, <laughs> "GP is a specialty." So one, I asked that once. Two, I will never <laughs> make that mistake again. But I realized what she was saying was, it is actually a specialty to be able to sit across so many different. In this case, it's parts of the body or you know systems and ailments, family dynamics. Right, it is a specialty to be able to have breadth rather than depth. And I used to feel a little self-conscious, you know, at Bain, I was not, I had a functional expertise, which I'll talk about in a second, but I wasn't an industry expertise expert, whereas lots of people get into the partnership because they're a healthcare consultant or financial services. And he, I was like, I don't want that. I want to jump around. And then I realized when I made this faux pas with my friend, the GP, that there is a really um, valuable skill set that I have in being a generalist. And I'll tell you how I apply it at Flying Fox. So we are industry agnostic, although we tend to over-index on a similar business model. For us, it's B2B SaaS. And it is a skill set to meet a founder who's working in the construction industry and 30 minutes later meet someone who's in financial services and 30 minutes later meet someone who's in health. And one of the things that I think that I and Kylie and Bree, what we do really well as generalists, is that we are able to cut through all of the things you need to know about healthcare, hone in on what is the critical problem that this founder is trying to solve right now? What do I need to know to understand this problem? And not how do I boil the ocean and become a world's leading expert in healthcare, but how can I find the so what really quickly and then figure out is this problem real? Is it large and growing and global? And is the current solution set uh, unacceptable and therefore we need a new solution. And I think that, that that's a skill. Yep. And I think that I've honed, I, you know, it was kind of taught to me at Bain. I've honed it over my career. And I'm really proud to say that I am a very strong generalist. Now, I have a functional expertise, as I mentioned, and that's in helping companies to translate customer feedback into meaningful changes in products and kind of making sure that that link between customer and product is inextricable. Um, And when you do it well, you can achieve pretty significant growth out of that. And that's both top-line growth as well as bottom-line improvements so that you can drive to profitability more quickly. And so that's where I think about, you know, I have a broad generalist skill set as far as industries go, and then I'm pretty good at this one or two things that I can do functionally. So that's how oh, I think about
0: you've, it. You've given me a lot there. I think the GP example is phenomenal. I mean, I, I feel bad for your GP. I've got a GP appointment after this, and I certainly won't be making the same mistake now that you've forwarded you know. me. Uh, but no, that's a that's a great way to explain it, and I'll definitely be applying that at some point later. You touched on your investment thesis uh, very briefly at Flying Fox, but before we get to that, um, tell me a little bit about transitioning from working inside startups with the ping pong tables and the kombucha to transitioning across to the VC and and funding side, and and what made you want to make that leap, and sort of just the the founding journey um, with Kylie and then Bree um, at Flying Fox, how you came yeah. together and made that leap. Well,
1: unfortunately, no more kombucha on tap. Things change when um, you are the custodians of other people's capital. And (laughs) I take that responsibility very seriously. So uh, in a home office, no kombucha. um, We are as lean as the startups we serve. But um, the origin story is that I met Kylie at an industry event. Um, She at that time had Eleanor Venture, which was a syndicate I was um, investing quite actively individually, and I was finding lots of people were coming up behind me, friends from Bain or um, even the startup world. And they said, hey, we know you're investing in startups. Um, We don't know how to do that. Can we, like, next time you have an investment, can I just throw 10K behind you or can I throw 20K behind you? And what I realized is that they had the interest and they had the capital, but they didn't have either access to deal flow. Um, Or if they found a great company, their check size was too small to get in if it was a hot deal. Or they didn't have the confidence to know how to do it. And then I also met some other people, you know, friends of mine. They're like, oh, I invest in startups too. You know, I put 250 k into my friend's cousin's, you know, startup. And I was like, ooh. I love your conviction, but that's uh, pretty dangerous if you're putting all of your eggs in one basket. And so what I realized was here in Australia, we had all of these founders saying, we don't have enough early stage capital. And we had all of these people who said, we have money and we don't know how to deploy it. And that's just a market failure. And so I was thinking, how do I solve this market failure? Because I cared a lot about our ecosystem and ecosystem development. I met Kylie, who had the syndicate, and there are lots of advantages of a syndicate and lots of disadvantages. And I said, what would it look like if we joined forces, create a model that is as lightweight as a syndicate, but has more predictability um, and kind of firepower of a fund? And um, we bring all of these people along for the journey who are keen to invest and either don't have the confidence or the competence to do so. So that's how Flying Pucks was born. Um, we actually were secretly investing together and kind of everything in the back end was meld for a year before we publicly came out as partners. And that was a little try before you buy to make sure that our founding relationship was sound. Um, it was absolutely. Um, and then obviously we've been growing the team with the addition of Brie. Um, and I imagine with this new fund that we're raising, we will be looking to grow the team further. Um, And so, yeah, we started out with this dual mission. It was find the best founders in Australia, New Zealand, put fuel on their fire in the form of capital and support, and build out the most uh, valuable next generation of early stage investors. And so we kind of have done things the hard way, but it's been in pursuit of this dual mission and hard in that we have... Uh, 54 companies in the portfolio, about $30 million of assets under management, but we've done that with about 450 individual investors. Most people might deploy 30 million and that's like a super fun check, right? <laughs> or maybe they'll have, you know, four or five family offices. Um, but we chose to do that um in the early days with as many people as possible because we wanted to build out that next generation. Um, So we're really proud of what we've done there as well. And half of our investors wrote their very first check with Flying Fox. So we really feel confident that we're helping to build out that community of investors as well.
0: You're a small mob, but you have a very disproportionate influence on the ecosystem. I would say, and you can tell that just by looking at your press page on your website. How often your thought leadership is featured um, amongst the the top voices? That's because I'm ridiculously.
1: That's because I'm ridiculously good looking, Mike. But. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, well, anyone who doubts that will need to check out the video clips that go on uh, LinkedIn or other social platforms because uh, audio at the moment. <laughs> I,
1: have a, I have a voice for radio. I'm oh, sorry, I have a face for radio, right?
0: Hey, that's my line. I use yeah. that. that. That's okay. That's okay. So, look, I mean, when 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 your partner's in a startup uh, or co-founders, it's really – important to get that right uh how you work together in a relationship how you think how you meld together um getting good cooperation getting agreeing on systems making sure there's both a personality and a work style fit has it was it the same for you and kylie and how did that play out how did you find that sort of common ground and take us through that sort of melding process where you figure out yes this can work is it a complementary thing what, what did you look for and what did you find
1: yeah i um so we definitely one wanted to make sure that it worked before we jump into what is um a very deep professional marriage because a fund um or any investment has a responsibility a fiduciary responsibility until it exits, and that can be ten years fifteen years so we literally have to um kind of have all hands in the middle um it's not just for our success- our success it's for our legal uh compliance as well. Um, and so I think that what's really magical about the founding relationship between me and Kylie is that we have real complementary skill sets. So Kylie is an MA lawyer by by training, so she obviously Excels in all the legals, kind of the deal making, the terms. She also is a founder herself. She's had two startups, one that's been a bit of a failure, learned a ton from that. And then one that was a successful exit, learned a ton from that. And then, of course, I have kind of the operations side and that product customer um, kind of growth loop side. And so we, I think together, the two of us, and then with the addition of Brie, who brings um, experience from ClassPass and Airbnb and Uber, who knows how to scale things globally. Um, she she's part of that international expansion teams for those companies. Um, that's a pretty formidable skill set to be able to then offer our, our founders. But what's important is not just that you have complementary skill set. It's most important that you have values alignment. And I think that the one thing that is impenetrable between me and Kylie is that we are both committed to always do the right thing and what we believe is the right thing is the same. And that means doing right by our founders, doing right by our investors, even if sometimes that is painful. Um, And I think part of the reputation that we've built in the community is based on that. Those who have seen us in tough times, because I'll be honest, the shit hits the fan sometimes in startup land and how you show up in those moments really reveals who you are. And I think people who have seen that know who we are and what we stand for. Um, And then, you know, I think we're also known for being straight shooters and very transparent. What you see is what you get. Uh, What we think is usually what you hear. um, And we feel like that sounds like it should be a given, but it's gone a long way in the community. So I think that that is actually our secret sauce is that we have lots of skills that I think hopefully make us good at investing and good at supporting our founders. But I think that we have um we have personal and firm-wide values that is our guiding light in times of challenge.
0: Very well said, very well said. So you've chosen to focus on early stage startups and writing a lot of pre-seed and seed stage checks. Um what what's important about that to you and Flying Fox? Because it would have been very easy for you, with your expertise, to say, "Let's focus on Series A, Series B, and whatnot." Um, you know, a lot more safety and less risk. Maybe at at, at those at those points in time, you take on a lot more risk a lot earlier. Um, talk to me about that and why that was the decision that you made together for Flying Fox.
1: Yeah, and um, not only if we go later stage, we would also have what would be a larger fund, which throws off larger fees, which gives more short-term reward as well. I'll tell you why we picked early stage. And there is kind of a financial reason, and then there's an ecosystem reason, and then there's a personal reason. So... Um, The ecosystem reason is that there was just a big freaking wide gaping hole in early stage. There just wasn't enough money. And even it's still, I think the stats remain the same where like in the US, about $25 per capita is deployed in the early stage for our $3 in Australia. So we just have an early stage gap. And if you starve an ecosystem at its earliest stages, you are inherently putting a cap on the birth rate. And a vibrant startup ecosystem is dependent on a high birth rate and then systematically lowering the death rate. Um, so that, you know, the shape of the funnel needs to have a really wide mouth. And instead of tapering very quickly, you need to kind of keep the, the widening shape of that funnel at every stage. And so there is no series A or series B if we do not have a vibrant early stage ecosystem. So we need to have those babies be born so that a percentage of them can grow up to be, you know, elite college athletes. Um, and so you sometimes, especially in an early ecosystem like Australia, you don't have the luxury to say, like, oh, I'm just gonna sit and wait at series B and wait for those low risk companies. If they're not being born, hmm. they, you know, they'll they'll not get there and they won't get there at the Quantity or the quality that you need to be writing those checks. So one is like the ecosystem is still young. We need to double down and even more so continue to double down that early stage. The financial reason is that's where the money is. So it is high risk, but it's also high return. And if you're doing it correctly, and our hypothesis around how you do it correctly is by having a large diversified portfolio. So we have 54 companies. We imagine in a few years that will be, you know, 250 companies. Um, so we believe having lots of at-bats while you still are high conviction on each individual company, but that will give us the statistical, um, best chance for success. And what we know is that, you know, when you're in super early, you know, even a modest exit by VC terms, call it a hundred million dollars. If you got in at a four mil val, that's a pretty sweet multiple, right? There's 20, 25 X there. Um, and so if you get in super early, um, you have to accept that there might be a higher death rate, but you're getting in at a small valuation. And even if they aren't reaching massive, massive VC scale, you'll still be in good stead from a return perspective. And then if they do reach that scale, that's where we have returns where it's not unreasonable, given our portfolio size, to have a company that should return us a 1,000x. Like that Like is actually statistically within the very high realm of possibility. And then that third reason is just personally... And that is just, that's what we really like. And it's what we're really good at. So um, we love finding incredible people who are founders, who are waking up every day to do their life's mission. What a privilege. Um, We're really good at helping them to figure out how to get from zero to one, especially with those early product decisions. How to get really close to the customer. How to build something, get those first um, customers and that revenue through, and then think about scale. And then there's probably a better investor who will help them really think about big global scale world domination. Um, but we say we want to be a company's most valuable investor for their first 18 months, um, and you know you got to play where you care, where you're good and where you have a disproportionate ability to change the shape of, or the, you know, the direction of their trajectory. So that's why we're super early stage. So that that's kind of the ecosystem, the financial and the personal reason.
0: Yeah. And I think there's just that also sounds to me like there's that real love of being there early at the start and mm-hmm. sort of seeing that love of a mission, the conviction and, Provided that the mix of the team, the founder, um, and, and the timing is right, uh, why not jump on and have a crack?
1: I must love chaos, Mike. I'll tell you. Um, <laughs> you know, because if you think about early stage companies as you know babies, it, it sometimes feels like you know we're in a kindergarten. Everyone's running around and crazy, and sometimes it's quite hectic. At the same, well, time. we're
0: both parents, we we must love chaos to some degree.
1: Exactly. We're masochists.
0: (laughs) Um, And so is part of it also, I mean, I I think I read that you dedicate 30 to 40% of your funds to follow on investments. Is that right?
1: Yeah, in our new fund. So um, we've been running these rolling funds, which basically just means, you know, when we thought about what is the new model that has the flexibility of a syndicate, but is more lightweight than a fund, but also has all the power of a fund, we came up with these rolling funds, which just means once a year, people commit a certain amount of capital, we close it up, we deploy that capital across 10 deals um, over the course of a year. And so one, we're making sure that when an investor comes to us, unlike a syndicate where they might make two investments and then have a portfolio with a statistical uh, value of $0, um, we're giving them a lease base portfolio at a minimum of 10 companies, we also aren't just picking ten random ones. We're really curating and making sure we have diversification in those ten. Um, but we have been doing that. We're now on our fourth year of running those rolling funds, and it just for especially for new investors, which is fifty percent of the Flying Fox investors are first timers. It just brings down that barrier, both in size of check as well as time commitment and just like that fear of like, I don't know how to be an LP. It's like, cool, like just take it down a notch, man. Come and hang out with Flying Fox for a year. And then we have many of our investors that just keep rolling on and come into multiple vintages. Um, But what we discovered is that is an outstanding first check product. But as our companies are growing we are getting some really successful ones who are in great stead to be getting second and third checks from us. We to date have written 22 follow-on checks into our portfolio companies, but that's where our model reverts back to something that resembles more of a syndicate where we kind of Mm. pass the hat around. And what we don't like about that is that we're not able to say to our founders with conviction, we know exactly what check size it is. And Mm. also, um, we're leaving that decision making to our individual investors, which is cool. But we're the ones with the asymmetric information, and so um, we believe that we should be using that asymmetric information to make our investors a lot of money and yes. making deployment decisions. So in uh, this uh, new fund, sorry,
0: no, no you go ahead. I'll I was just up so with.
1: in this new fund, it will be a bit more traditional, where forty percent of that capital is allocated for follow on. And that will be at the management's discretion, and it also means we have pro rata rights into every deal, Um, and so we have this opportunity that we don't want to miss. If we know that the company is flying high, we want to be able to um, retain our percentage ownership, if not double down.
0: Yeah, no, it's it's a superb way to do it, and I think. I think it's it, it's interesting I have seen a bit of a trend of traditional VC um, having rolling funds but also having syndicate model opportunities for people and I think that um isn't it a great way for angel investors to do it in a bit of a more supported way because you know um Mike Davis as a random angel investor doesn't have a lot of clout to go to a um, an emerging startup and say hey I'd like to write you a check and it, you know not no know, not knowing too much other than what I learned from the VC Catalyst course Course, you know, which was to, a lot. Which, sorry, sorry. To, to clarify, <laughs> was a great deal, and I'm highly confident. Perhaps uh, the Dunning Kruger effect is kicking in somewhat too. But I also know what I don't know to some extent, and I know that to be confident, even at that early stage, it's great to throw in with others. And w- when you see things like you've got Flying Fox as a lead investor um, in a deal, or you know that you're part of, of deals, that gives great confidence. But to go in with you may may be an even better, more secure option too.
1: Yeah. And I think that we're solving a, a bunch of problems. You mentioned um, a few of them, either the confidence issue or the access issue. Mm. Um, we also have a lot of investors who, like yourself, are not uh, investing full time as the, they have other things going on in life. And it just ain't nobody got time for that. you know. So some people who want to build up that early stage portfolio, they don't have time for meeting Dozens of companies for going through the due due diligence process for making the decision, um, you know, quality decision process. And to give you an idea, to write ten to fifteen checks a year, we're seeing about a thousand companies. And so that's another reason why a lot of folks who are kind of professionals um, in in their life but want to build this port have exposure to this asset class find that they like the rolling fund model because. They can just set it and forget it or engage as much as they want or as little as they want. And sometimes they might have a really busy quarter and they're just like, I feel so good knowing that even though I can't man my inbox this quarter and I can't engage with the deals, I just know that good decisions are being made on my behalf and my portfolio is being built in a smart way. Um, Or all of a sudden they find a company you know, they learn about a company that we're investing in that's very exciting and they have the time, energy, and passion to jump into mm. it, then they're welcome to engage as much as possible. So we call it a choose-your-own-adventure. And in traditional syndicates, the way it would work is we'd put out a deal into the email saying, we're investing in, you know, Mike Davis Co., and you have 48 hours to say if you're in and out. And that's really stressful if, you know, you're an executive and it's end of quarter and you're trying to get financial reports in, um, And then you go back three days later, you're like, oh, this is a great deal. And you see that it's closed. So we just wanted, again, if we're trying to bring more investors into the fold, we have to acknowledge that many of them have scarce time, scarce knowledge, um, scarce energy to do this. And so we have designed Flying Fox to kind of tick all those boxes.
0: To... To your point around sort of being in early and negotiating power, you mentioned the the importance of securing pro rata rights in deals that you enter. How important is it for you to also be the lead investor in early stage deals? Uh, will, will you go in not as the lead investor reluctantly? Will you do it happily? What's your preference yeah. on that?
1: Yeah, so we actually go in um, as the lead, the... Um, Minority of the time. So, about maybe 20 to 30% of the time we're leading, and the rest of the time we're following. And that is because we're usually coming into around like a pre seed round these days is probably around the 1.5 million mark. And we're usually writing a check that's around the 500K. So, just by law of math, we are not the the lead. Um, but also, we are a co-investor by strategy. And we've co-invested with over 25 firms in Australia and around the world. We're really proud of those relationships. And so that's been strategic because we get incredible deal flow through our VC friends, because our check is non-threatening the energy and support that we put into the founders is disproportionate to our check size. Um, And especially if you're a bigger firm and you're writing early checks, but they're really small compared to the oversize of your fund, um, they like that we do quite a bit of heavy lifting in those first 18 months. And so it's almost like we have these um, allegiances or these alliances with all of the firms. And so We sometimes find them, they send us deals to say either maybe this is too early or this doesn't fit our thesis, but we think it's great for you. So that's a great source of deal flow. Or even better yet, they're like, we're making this investment, but we think your expertise would really be outstanding to these founders. We could write this whole thing with our eyes closed, but actually, let's make room for you guys because you'll be a great addition. And we're very proud of how many times that has happened. So we are. Not a lead by design. That said, if we meet a great company, we want to just put some fuel on their fire, ASAP, especially if it's going to be a safe node or you know something like that, then we absolutely are happy to write the terms, put that safe note in front of them, get them that cash, and get up and running um, same way when some bridging rounds that have happened in the last few years where it ends up being kind of internal baseball, then you know we have no problem um leading some of that. And that's where it's great to have Kylie who's an MA lawyer for 20 years. Because one, she's the best startup lawyer in the country. But um second is we have free legals. So it doesn't cost us anything to <laughs> to run these deals. So we are, yeah, we're almost agnostic as to whether we lead or follow, but by structure and design, we tend to be not the lead investor.
0: Are you familiar with the idea of co opetition? So that the yep. term. Yeah. yeah, so this is something that, I, I mean, I just want to make the analogy to what we see very commonly in the uh, non-profit or for-purpose space where often uh, not-for-profits are in the same sector and they'll often be uh, competing because uh, government the way they fund demands, you know, winners or losers. Uh, Same with philanthropy. But the climate and the way things have changed over time has made it increasingly likely that uh, partners uh, are going to be more likely to win or um, discrete entities that are in the same space sort of come together and either co-pitch or share information and work together and they'll co-bid for something rather than win separately. And so that has led to a lot more information sharing. And I I guess a lot Lot more uh, collaboration and friendliness in the sector rather than competition a lot of the time. I see a lot of beauty in how you operate because although you all you all have your own remit as VCs and your own um, charters and you you want to be successful, you, you're sort of um, it's it's definitely not as cutthroat and and as hostile as I thought it might be in trying to win deals. You're working together a lot of the time for common interests and goals, which I think is a wonderful kind of result of that uh, co-opetition sort of model.
1: Yeah, that's right. And um I think that's a function of a few things. One, we're just a younger ecosystem here with fewer um funding options and so um we just haven't gotten as cutthroat as other ecosystems are like Silicon Valley. Um maybe that will happen and certainly I know in 2021 when things were heating up and we had a lot of international firms coming to Australia and hunting on our ground like things got a little more tense, but I'm happy to say at least right now um It's pretty cooperative, but we still hold each other to really high standards. The second function is that um, part of why we cooperate is one, like I said, we get great deals, but also as of right now, we don't have really deep pockets. And so we need to build relationships and these alliances because we need downstream investors um, to be excited about the companies we've invested in to write those big checks and lead subsequent rounds. Um, And so it's... It's both a nice way to be, but it's also a necessary way to be. If you are a highly focused early stage fund that by design keeps those funds small, you need to make friends with some big pockets.
0: Yep. Well said. Now... I've been doing a bit of reading and as an observer of the space and an occasional investor, um, what I've noticed is significantly reduced deal flow plus lower valuations uh, in the market at the moment and obviously with interest rates being where they are, a much higher cost of capital as opposed to the 2021 sort of tech bubble period where you saw mega valuations, a lot of AI hype and now subsequently a lot of markdowns um, happening. How would you describe the the climate at the moment? Do you sort of, are you seeing similar things? A- and how does this play into um the behaviors and outlooks for both investors um, and founders?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, I'll just say that I think there's never been a better time to be an early stage investor. Now, um, I get paid to say that because I'm an early stage investor, but I truly believe that's true. And I'm not alone. Um, I think in the last cut through ventures report, like 60 to 70% of investors said they think that the best deals are going to come in the next 12 months, and that this vintage, when we look out in 10 years, we look back, this will be one of the best vintages. Um, and that's because, as you said, the valuations have come back down to earth from some of those 2021 highs. I think that founders are a little more realistic around what their capital strategy needs to look like. Founders are also um, exercising some optionality and Getting cash flow positivity much faster. And that's one to give them optionality, but two, because tools like AI are creating efficiencies internally so that they have the ability to make cap- further capital raising a choice rather than an existential decision. Um, so when we have valuations coming down, it means that we get to meet great companies because there's been no change in the talent that we're seeing. Um, we get to come in at a much lower entry price. And again, if you remember, our job is to exit with multiples. Um, the math serves that if we have the same outcome of a company in 10 years, but we came in at a 4 mil valve versus what would have been an 8 mil valve in 2021, we are twice as better off. Um, and so, yeah, we we think it's a great time to be an investor. The other reason why we think it's a great time to be an early stage investor is as I said, companies are able to get to cash flow positivity or break even profitability much more early, much earlier. And so if you think about what that might mean, we have a hypothesis that says that for a lot of the f- investors who kind of wait to that series B, they want to wait until it's de-risk, they want to wait until you know it's easier to assess because you're running a discounted cash flow on the business, doing a multiple on revenue. Um, we're not sure if those opportunities are going to come. And again, if if a founder is able to be the master or the mistress of his or her own destiny, um, and is able to grow that company without external capital, they may choose not to do so. Like why dilute if you don't have to? And so we actually believe that coming in early with these 500k checks in this $1.5 million round, and maybe the next round, it might actually be the only time to have a meaningful exposure to private tech companies in the high growth space um and so i mean only time will tell whether that plays out but right now we are looking at our portfolio 50% of the companies are cash flow positive uh and so in the past where i'd say 100% of our companies would require downstream capital in order to exist it is really just a choice um and so you know, I think those who are waiting in the wings for companies to get super big so they can go into these mega rounds, like, they might not come knocking. The other reason why it's great to be investing now is um, some of our companies who did want or need further capital have come back for bridging rounds in the last 12 months. Um And they have had great progress in the last 12 months by all accounts, you know, great customer traction, great product traction, build build out the team, learned more about their market. Um, And and yet the market has dictated that we do bridging rounds roughly at the same valuation as last time. And so if you think about what that means, we get to see a company that has improved and we get to buy more of it because we're high conviction at yesterday's price. So um, yeah, the last 12 months have been great. Now, where it has been challenging is just for those funds who are fundraising, and we're one of them. Um, we are making really great progress with our fundraise, but if you ask anyone who's raising a fund right now, they'll say that um, the timelines to close are longer than they were a few years ago. You need to kiss many, many more frogs uh, before you find a princess or a prince. <laughs> LP. Um, and that's because with those interest rates going up, as you said, Mike, just the alternative uses of that capital, especially in a low or no-risk way, goes up. Um, and also, because there was such a frenzy in 2021, a lot of folks over and they haven't seen their money come back yet. Um, and so we're just in a little bit of a tightened capital market. And so it's a problematic combination of when this is actually the best time to be investing and those capital allocators are kind of sitting on their stashes. It's a bit frustrating for those of us on the front line. But I can tell you, like this is when I'm double downing, double double downing on my own personal capital and um, getting it into all of those deals that that I'm uh, doing on behalf of my investors as well.
0: That's terrific. Look, we, we've given a lot of quality to the investors and potential investors out there. Let, let's turn to the founder side briefly, because uh, you know we have a lot of founders who listen and a lot that come on the podcast, and a lot of them are asking me questions about how best to deal with this current climate, where they feel that maybe the doors aren't as open to them, or they're getting a lot of knockbacks um, because of timing, or you know uh, maybe the conditions just aren't right. Um, what would what would your advice be for founders in this climate around timing, and what they should do in the interim if they're not getting the uh, their their deals or their opportunities looked at um, right now, or they're getting feedback that they need to? Probably waited out a bit. Is this a matter of, um, as we've heard elsewhere, tightening their belts a little bit, focusing on reducing costs, increasing efficiencies? Is it about making sure that you've got um, really good market testing and feedback before you you come to, to VCs? What well, what do you want to see at the moment uh, from disciplined founders in this sort of climate before they come to you?
1: Yeah, and I um I want to. Make sure that my last statement around this being the best time to be an investor is tempered with the acknowledgement that it's a, it's, um, a, can be a tough time to be a founder right now. Um, and we, of course, have a lot of empathy for that because we have over a hundred founders in our portfolio who we, we love and, um, you know, support. And it's been a tough, you know, few years. So you actually answered the question really beautifully in, in your question. But I think that. First of all, it should be clear that great companies are still being founded or well they're still being founded, and they're still being funded. So we're still doing a deal at least one every month. So we are seeing great stuff that you know our bar hasn't changed at all. In fact, we're actually just seeing better and better deals, and our opportunity cost of capital um has just gone up and and so great companies are still getting the money they need it might be at slightly different terms and that's just the founder needing to temper her or his expectation and just really understand where is the market right now um and meet it where it's at the problem is is that we got a little spoiled the last few years the valuations kind of weren't matched up to reality and if you're anchoring yourself to that that that's a problematic expectation so i encourage people to really understand where the market stands right now understand what their peer companies look like. So if they're coming to pitch me a company, pitch me their company with certain expectation of terms, they should know roughly what else am I seeing uh, throughout that day and make sure that if they're not totally out of whack with that then obviously my money is better spent elsewhere. So have your finger on the pulse of where that market is please do not anchor it to 2021 numbers. If anything, go back to, you know, 2018. That's probably where we've corrected back to um, and kind of know what, what the option set for us is. The way that you get cut through and the way you always would get our attention and eventually our check is by having an incredibly crisp and um, deep articulation of the customer problem that you're trying to solve. And that customer problem is in a large and growing global market, and you have some sort of unfair advantage to be the girl or the guy who's solving that problem. And if you're able to talk to us you know, in those terms, rather than in what we call solutionitis, where you love you know, selling us your product, I'm like, don't talk to me about the product, talk to me about the problem that you're solving. Um, if you're able to make a compelling case on those three things, then you're going to get our attention. Whereas I think in 2021, because everything was so frothy and there was so much money and there was so much competition, people just needed to get money out the door. And they're like, oh, look, a man and a dog or a woman and her college roommate. Like, like, (laughs) let's just throw their money. And so I really love that we have returned back to um, a little bit of um, sanity into our ecosystem. So the good companies will always get funded. And where we've seen things drop off is like, Shit that never should have been funded in the past just won't clear market now. So that is a net benefit for everyone. It's a net benefit because the noise has less left to the, the system for investors. And it's a benefit for founders. If they didn't have something that was commercially viable, um, the distorted market was giving them misinformation that they were going to be okay. And at least now the market is, even if it's a tough pill to swallow, they're giving them the right dose of medicine. Um, so yeah, I think that my advice to founders remains the same in the same way that my investment strategy has remained the same. And that is come at us with a strong value proposition that you are providing. Show us some sort of traction, whether that is the, tra- the, the rate at which you're able to build product, the rate at which you're able to learn new information, the rate at which you're able to convince people to try things out, whether that's paid or unpaid. So show me that you understand the space, you're uniquely qualified to solve it, and you are a person of momentum. Um, And that's what would have gotten my attention in 2018, in 2021, and today in 2023.
0: I absolutely nailed it. So well said, Rach. Now now we're moving on to the uh, fun uh, section. This has all been fun, but the super fun part of the podcast, which is where we sort of wrap things up. Have you seen the series Succession before?
1: Of course, obsessed with it.
0: Do you recall the uh, scene in Succession when Roman Roy uh, decides to buy his father um, Hearts in the the Scottish League? Well, you are the proud owner of the Angel City Football Club. Uh, Different, Very different to Roman buying his father the incorrect club of his uh, childhood. (laughs) But I I needed to find a segue there that worked for both of us. So uh, I've had a bit of a look and the team which formed last year is now coming fifth on the ladder. So you're absolutely crushing it.
1: It was amazing. So we just completed our second season. Unfortunately, we went out in the quarterfinals. um, But that was part of my reason of being in the States last week. Our last league game was on Sunday. And um, one, we had started the season at the bottom of the ladder and spent the first half dead last in the league. And then we had some change in coaching and I think a renewed energy. And so we worked our way up the ladder. And so we were in this amazingly surprising and um precarious position on sunday where not only did we have to win but also like 18 other things needed to go our way we needed to win we needed to win big with a goal differential we needed this team to lose and this team to win you know it was a whole chess game and it freaking happened and we just lost our minds because obviously the team is only two years old to go from the bottom of the ladder into the playoffs um, and to be in the playoffs. And our second year of playing was pretty magical. Um, And we needed to win by four goals, which in football is like an impossible. Yeah. It's
0: an impossible result. And in
1: angel city, we are good at many things and high scoring games is not one of them. And so we basically basically needed to pull off the impossible and we did. So it was magic, absolute magic. We then went up to Seattle for our first um, quarterfinal game and, Unfortunately, a goal in the eighty seventh minute uh got the better of us. um, but don't get me started on sport. Obviously, I can ramble too long. No,,
0: no I just um, wanted to I wanted to shout that out because uh, when I think about like what are my lifelong dreams and what might yours be, I mean, Wow. What box ticked? I mean, that, that's just, and the progress of the team. So to be an owner of a football club and a sport that you're passionate about, that you, you believe in and the second league making the playoffs. I mean, it must just be like incredible thing to be involved in on top of everything else you do. Yeah.
1: I have to pinch myself. Um, and there are a few more reasons why this is so special. One of it is that it was the brainchild, um, of my childhood best friend. Um, and when she called me and said, I had this idea of starting women's soccer team um, and I'm like, wait, so you're telling me there's an opportunity to be on a cap table with your lifelong best friend to invest in sport that you're totally passionate about to do it in a way that's never been done before, where it's female run female owned um, and with equality at the center of everything that you do. Um, I get to invest, which is like what I do for a living um, and we're doing it in a way that a sports team has never done. We're running it like a startup and investing in it, running like a VC process. Um, and this team is going to stand for so much big more than the game where you know, 10% of our revenue, um, sponsorship revenue goes directly back into the community, um, where we as a team are going to stand for values that so far exceed sport. Like when you tick all of those boxes, you're like, pinch me like pinch me, there is no greater privilege um, (laughs) to be part of this team. And then not like some investments, you don't get to touch and feel like it's hard to touch and feel the software. But on Sunday, when you get to actually go stand in the stands, and I'll tell you a little funny thing is I have an Angel City jersey with my name on the back. And um, when I sit, like my seat is right there on the field. It's like, literally right on the field. Um, And so I secretly hope that at some point the coach is going to be like, Newman, you're in. Uh, (laughs) And I have this like
0: total
1: ridiculous belief that like I can still do it. I still got it, Mike. Um, well,
0: couldn't you just call yourself on as owner i mean wouldn't you just <laughs> listen listen i mean number nine not before me I, i'm gonna just take the jersey off and throw yourself on the field why not uh,
1: you know what this is where you empower leaders and you have to <laughs> let them do their job unfortunately yeah, yeah, yeah. no but uh you know and the angel city story is one that's truly just getting started but already what an incredible ride it's been
0: So this is one of the reasons I love talking to you generally and on a podcast is that we can go from the weather to uh, football, football ownership. We can talk VC. We can also talk gut health, which we didn't do on this podcast, but I'm sure we will another time. And we Uh, have in the past. We have in the past, and I think that's the beauty of us sort of being like GPs, you're, you're generalist specialists, where we, we've got a whole bunch of interests and we somehow try and push them all together into what we do, which is awesome. Yeah. Thank you so right. much for being with me, Rach. Um, how can people connect with you and learn a bit more about you, your work, and Flying Fox? Yeah,
1: absolutely. So just hit up our website, we're flyingfox.vc. Um, hopefully, everything you need to know uh, is there, whether you're a founder. And you think maybe we're good partners um, from an investment perspective, whether you're an investor and think you might want to join in either our fund or our next cohort, or whether you're just a startup, um, you know, super fan and want to get on our newsletter. And then one of the things that we do, you know, you mentioned VC Catalyst, is sometimes we run these kind of mini sessions for companies to help them either think like an investor and kind of we share the VC mindset and the VC skill set, um, Or if individuals want to learn how to be an investor, we kind of run these education programs um, for companies. So if you or your company is interested, there's info on our website as well. But yeah, come have a look at the website. Come, you know, if we're at an event and you see me, I kind of stick out. I'm the gray haired, grumpy grandpa looking woman <laughs> walking around in Nike dunks. Um, she always
0: and- has the best shoes. I, I always try and wear cool shoes when I know Rachel's going to be there because it's, <laughs> you know, it's a thing.
1: Yeah, so if you if you look down and someone is wearing Nikes and they're too old to be doing it, that's me. So come and say <laughs> hey, and uh, I look forward to meeting you.
0: Great being with you. Hang around and let's have a quick debrief.
1: All right. Thanks, Mike.
0: If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you hit the subscribe button in your podcast player and why not share it with a friend or two. If you want more from your Humans of Purpose experience, become a Humans of Purpose member today through our new platform, Supercast. All you need to do is hit the link in our show notes. If you have a message to share with our audience about your brand, products, or services, we have a wide variety of paid promotional packages available. Please get in touch by hitting the link in our show notes.